0: Hello and welcome to Japan Explained. This episode is a bit out of the usual format, as I decided to try and record my first interview. So please don't judge it too harshly. The subject, on the other hand, is already familiar to you. It is sake. We've had two episodes already, how many more are there? You're probably thinking, and I promise, this is the last one. But believe me, the topic is so deep that it's totally possible to make many, many more. To help me revisit some of the material from previous episodes, as well as to break down the many myths about sake, I'm joined by Dick Staverns, the founder of Yoigo Kochi Sake Importers. We talked about how sake came to Europe and America, how to choose and drink sake, what are the similarities between sake and other alcoholic beverages, How come sake is still mostly produced in tiny breweries and which sake can be rightfully called the most unusual? Here I should also mention that this episode is not sponsored. I did meet Dick at the presentation of his company's products and the lineup was so impressive I didn't sample even a third of it. But I asked him to be on the show because he genuinely impressed me with his knowledge about sake and dedication to educate people about it, so it was a crime not to invite him. With that in mind, please welcome my guest. Dick, hello.
1: Hello there, my name is uh, Dick Steirhans and I've been working in the field of Japanese studies mainly modern and contemporary Japanese history, politics, international relations, society and film for probably 35 years Uh, by now mainly in academia but at a certain stage I bumped into a thing called a pure saké I now so also uh, specialize in this uh, lovely fermented rice drink
0: but what made you interested in sake in the first place did you like it right away or it was more of an acquired taste
1: i think at a certain stage in my life i became interested in the culinary scene coming and going from to japan since the 1980s it was only start of this century when we moved to uh, japan with the family for a longer period that i happened to go to um, a sake bar in kyoto where normally i would not go because there were advertisements for this bar in an english language uh, magazine uh, telling you that you know you could get english explanation along with your sake but um when my uh, parents-in-law visited us it it seemed a good idea i went out there and it was uh, completely different from what uh, I expected. It was definitely not what you would call a a tourist trap. It was um, a pure sake heaven, probably at the time, one of the very few places in Japan where you would be provided with a 100% uh, pure sake menu. Uh, Hardly any other drinks out there and most of the sake, so all of the sake would be pure. Most of it would be unpasteurized, unfiltered, undiluted also a lot of uh, mature stuff out there and so it showed me what up till then i had not really discovered yet and that is so that sake is a lovely drink brilliant drink a lot of quality plus so uh, immense uh, variety and uh, yeah that's the moment where it became interesting for me and when i was introduced to Probably still is the best sake store in Japan, which also happens to be in, uh, in Kyoto. Then going there on a weekly basis, buying stuff and also starting to go out to breweries. They're so going deeper uh, and deeper. Not on a professional basis, but uh, yeah, becoming uh, gradually so uh, a specialist in pure sake.
0: I'm not a sake expert, but I can relate. As somebody who doesn't drink much alcohol, I was missing out on sake for a long time. I thought it was kind of a Japanese rice wine, but not as good as the real wine. And uh, only when I started to gain knowledge about it and trying some good sake, I realized that it can be tasty, it can be interesting. But I'm afraid this knowledge is still not that widespread in the world. Everybody has at least heard about wine regions and grape types. But sake regions, rice, yeast varieties, not so much. Most people I talk to still think of sake as Japanese rice wine, or worse, uh, rice vodka. But what should we actually compare sake to? And is the image of the beverage changing in the West?
1: I definitely think things have improved. There's a lot more information out there. And you know, especially now with the internet, if you go out now, to liquor stores, more specialized places, restaurants. You may bump into more variety. While I remember, so like in the 1980s in the Netherlands, there was only one brand of sake here being distributed. Now there are, I would say hundreds. There's more quality, there's more variety. The idea that sake is uh, distilled is still around, depends a bit on the country. The main problem is here, that you know sake comes with exotic labels and in liquor stores they tend to put all the stuff with the exotic labels on the same shelf and i'm afraid that all the other stuff with exotic labels is distilled so if you put sake there and you know not on the wine shelf it's not that strange that people will think it is distilled moreover sake can have a higher alcoholic percentage so that may also make for this idea however so the uh, resulting product is most wine-like and that is also how i promote and advocate it not even so stressing the japanese roots that much so just telling people that it's a brilliant fermented product which nowadays then also has a lot of quality depth and uh, variety and i think it's a bit different from wine in the sense that we tend to divide our wines up. So in terms of countries, regions, grape varieties, and these things are not so important in the case of sake. So although it is a wine-like drink and you can use it in the same way as wine, but so in sake we do not have very strong regional qualities and elements that in wine we think very important in terms of uh, climate, vintage, grape variety though is not so important in sake. It is a, a longer and more complex fermentation. In comparison to wine, sake is more about intervening and many, many decisions have to be made. So eventually, from the resulting product, you are no longer able to taste one element. So whereas, you know, if you were well-trained in wine, you can probably tell country, region, grape variety. If you're very well-specialized, you you can tell things like terroir and vintage. Uh, All this is pretty much impossible in sake. However, if you are more trained or maybe not more trained, so, but if you've been drinking widely, you may be able to recognize sake in the sense of that you will know exactly from which brewery that sake is because you know the hand of the man or woman who makes all these decisions so that is the uh, then the toji the uh, hair brewer
0: would you say Jizake or regional sake is a myth or just a marketing strategy then because if i understood correctly individual brewer's decision will have much bigger effect on the product than the region.
1: Yes, that is correct. So I actually think so, that jizake, the term is no longer used that much. So at a certain stage, I would say probably 1980s, 90s, it was used as a term in contrast to the more conventional sake, or the sakes being made not in sake breweries, but in sake factories. And Another slightly problematic thing is that so the national brewery organization is divided into chapters on the basis of a prefecture. So most of the breweries, they are organized by prefecture, by province. And so certain events, they may go out, all of them to Tokyo and do all the breweries from Akita uh, event. And you know, also in terms of sponsorship grants from you know either national government or prefectural government in many cases so these are then distributed to prefectural organizations rather than individual breweries that you know in order to get the grant in order to make the event have some coherence that they will stress some qualities of that prefecture but it doesn't mean anything I do not think that there's any, any need to structure your sake menu on the basis of region. So it's 100%, so about that one human being that is making all decisions. And actually, you know, we, we have like some sake brewing centers from early modern days. So where you find many sake breweries pretty much at spitting distance. And you know these can be completely different although they'll be using the same water and the same bacteria will be in the air. Yeah, decisions being made inside those separate breweries will be different and will make for different product. So if there are certain regional characteristics to sake, they're definitely not dominant and they are not dominated by things like climate, ingredients, you name it. The one and only thing That may direct the sake from a certain number of breweries from the same region is regional culinary preferences.
0: Now that we've established the individual brewery has the biggest effect on the flavor of sake, I must ask how many traditional breweries are still there? Are they doing well or is there a trend towards big-scale production?
1: Uh, No, I'm not. 100% sure. So when some sake breweries turn into sake factories, and that things, you know, really start making a difference. But I I think it's mainly a post-war development. So that at the moment, we probably have some two dozen or slightly more big sake factories. And then we have, I'm not 100% sure what the latest number is, but let's say 1000 plus relatively small family breweries. So in that sense so the industrial structure of the sake industry is rather strange. So you have some big players on the one hand, you have many, many small players on the other, and there's hardly anything in between. In sake factories, you may still have a head brewer, but many parts of the brewing process will be computer controlled. In most sake breweries, you will still have a head brewer, although, the kind of person may be rather different from what it used to be. Ever since the early modern period, so also Edo period, or Tokugawa period, all sorts of structures and traditions in the sake industry came into being. And in my opinion, uh, sake, you shouldn't trace it like all the way back to prehistory or Middle Ages. Please look upon it as an early modern invention that only came into being in I would say so 16th 17th century this is so also the moment in time that we find the first hair brewers where so we see a pattern of sake breweries being nicely distributed all over the country and where then also the tradition of so core brewing also let's say only during the winter months comes into being and so normally the pattern would be that sake was only made during the court cool months. So it depends a bit where you are in Japan, but let's say from October up until March onwards. And then within a sake brewery, you would have a very clear divide. On the one hand, you have the family that owns the brewery. And in many cases, so breweries, the names of breweries are the family name and then shuzo, uh, So the brewery of this or that family. And these people, are not at all involved in making the sake. Making sake is done by specialized artisans who then tend to come from the more colder regions of Japan. So think rather Northish or Japan sea coast, where the time that they can work on the land is relatively limited. And also, of course, so then the money that they can make out of this is relatively limited. And then so during the court months, when these people cannot work on the land, they will be hired to make the sake in a brewery. So for a period of six months. So a head brewer with his disciples, laborers, so a team will then come to a brewery, live there for six months and make the sake for the family that owns the brewery. this was pretty much functioning the system i would say up until the 1960s when a huge crisis started hitting the industry industry has also been hit by you know problems during the wartime period but yeah actually so it is wartime related it is during the wartime that they uh, invented the modern wartime tradition of adding uh, alcohol to sake distilled alcohol to sake perfectly justifiable during wartime and also during an occupation period people need to drink rice It's either a very strategic product that you may probably may not want to use dominantly for making sake or you know during the occupation there's hardly any rice around so you've got to do something and they did it so they started adding all sorts of stuff to the tanks still making booze, but you know, not terribly nice. Now, when, you know, Japan comes out of the occupation period and before long, so the economic miracle, economic growth uh, starts coming into action. This normally would have been the moment that breweries should have returned to decent, pure sake brewing. But under the guidance of the National Tax Office, they did not. And so for many decades, There was no pure sake around in Japan and it made that people were still drinking the stuff, but more and more started to wonder why the hell they would drink the stuff. It would give them a very nice alcoholic experience, but also uh, a terrible hangover the next day. And it made that Japanese masse stopped drinking uh, sake. And so this continuation of wartime tradition of making not very nice drink, has decimated the industry. So when you compare percentages to the 1930s, at the time, sake had a share of more than 80% of alcoholic drinks being produced and consumed in Japan. Nowadays, it's not even 6%. So the whole thing was decimated. And this then also led to the situation that, you know, many breweries went bankrupt, And those that didn't go bankrupt, in many cases, no longer had the money to hire professional uh, head brewer. So you saw more and more sake breweries, let's say families owning sake breweries, being forced to start making the sake themselves. And so in more modern days, there's also fewer people who are willing to do seasonal work. Finding head brewer is not an easy task anymore. So that has now made that maybe now, even in a majority of the family breweries, that you will find a family member who is making the sake. And that has had some uh, huge effects on the industry, because it means before, you know, a head brewer, well, you know, maybe you attained that status when you were 50 plus, probably even older, probably quite conventional. and sticking to the things that the head brewer before had told you now can happen if somebody dies early on in a family brewery that somebody in his 20s all of a sudden finds himself in most cases still himself uh, finds himself in charge of the brewery and in charge of brewing So completely different generation, with different experiences, different ideas, all of a sudden making sake, so making for a lot more variety.
0: I've actually read a lot of stories about breweries where the eldest son of the owner was working a regular office job, maybe even abroad, and later came home to see the family business struggling. Because, as you've said, sake is not the most popular alcoholic beverage in Japan anymore. And uh, that he tried to revitalize it, change the way sake is made, sake is drunk. But there is one story that stands out amongst them. It's Dasai. It's really a miraculous product, or is it mainly a story about good business and marketing skills?
1: Dasai is... Is about polishing and so it's about catering to the idea that the more the rice for the sake is polished the better your sake this is something that I completely disagree with like I already said sake is the result of hundreds of decisions so it's not merely about the polishing percentage and maybe you know there's people out there who like their sake more ricey than what should I say, uh, then sake that is actually hiding the main ingredient. so as you know, they use the words that we have for the categories of the more polished sake, so then the Ginjo and then the daiginjo. Ginjo. And on top of that, they also very much so stress the polishing percentage. And because they have turned their brewery into some kind of factory, in the sense that now inside it's temperature controlled and they brew year round yeah let's say it's in between a brewery so it still presents itself as a brewery but it now has many factory elements and so they've been able to combine heavy polishing with a relatively low price and uh, i think that explains most of the success. And then of course the, the marketing, you know, marketing and design, you know, they, they are very important. They've been very successful uh, in creating the idea that Dasai sake would be of superior quality. I don't think it is the kind of sake that I like. is much more outspoken in terms of taste and aroma. But if you believe in the hype that, you know, the more you polish off the rice grain and you less the taste of the rice, the nicer your sake is going to be. Yeah, then you, this is a place where you can get, you know, heavy polished stuff for uh, a relatively low price because it's mass produced. So that normally, you know, there's other breweries who also make a daiginjo, job, but it will be small batch. And so it will be relatively high cost. What they do is like they only make heavily polished stuff. So... It will be relatively cheaper when when you know you make 100% of that kind of stuff
0: for a long time the polishing percentage was the first thing I looked at when picking sake so you say it's not that important then can you please teach me what should I look for on a sake label brewery name rice variety type of sake how can I use this information to pick the sake that will match my taste
1: There is a part of the industry, and I'm afraid that a lot of media picked up this idea. Part of the industry will tell you the more polished, the better. And then, you know, terms like ginjo and Dai ginjo will come along. That is not what uh, I support. I would only say that, you know, what is superior of ginjo and Dai ginjo is mainly the price. Because, you know, you're going to polish more of the rice grain, so you need more rice. Rice is a relatively expensive product. So for Ginjo and Dai Ginjo, you, you will have to pay more. But what we say is don't bother about the polishing percentage. Bother about the fact of whether your sake is pure or not. Purity in sake are legally uh, defined in terms of not adding distilled alcohol. So not using that wartime tradition not adding sugars there may be a few more elements and just like uh, excessive use of sulfites in the case of wine can really hide the true and very outspoken aroma and taste of the grape i also find that the use of distilled alcohol in many cases will play down the true qualities of sake so we say so when you go out to the store, make sure that the sake that you buy is pure. Now, of course, you know, just like natural wine it does not imply that you're going to like all natural wines. Also, within pure sake, there are many, many different varieties out there, but I would say that it's the one and only objective condition that tells you that this is the category where you are most likely to find a good sake. If you're in Japan and you do not read Japanese, it may not be easy to make that distinction. Although there's one trick, because in pure sake, there's four ingredients. So we have the rice, malted rice, yeast, and water. However, on the basis of Japanese law, you need not mention water and yeast. So you only have rice, malted rice, two elements. And so Japanese language, they will separate these two elements by a dot. So if you look at the Japanese label and you find a place where there's only one dot, it's probably pure sake. And if there's two dots, then something else was added and then it's no longer pure sake. If you're not in Japan and out here, you know, the back label should tell you, we tell you on our products that it's pure uh, sake
0: that's actually a very nice tip but there are so many other things written on the label now we've figured out about polishing ratio and pure sake but what about personal preferences Um, for example if i like let's say uh, riesling which type of sake should i look for
1: well you know sake is wine like but it's not wine so if you do not know a lot of things about wine, but you know you wanna buy a very nice present for your friend, you're probably gonna go into the store and because you're slightly shy. You don't wanna bother the people in the store. You're gonna find it by yourself. And then somewhere you heard, you're gonna find a good wine because maybe there's like a designation, a duck on there. Uh, there should be a vintage. If you cannot find the grape variety, it may be tricky. You know, these are all kinds of things that in most cases you're not going to find on a sake label In sake in essence we do not have a vintage you may only really put it on you know if you have long matured sake telling you so how many years it's been matured in many cases they will not tell you about the rice variety yeast variety water variety that kind of thing legally they have to say where it was made so you will find the address of the brewery and there but I'm not sure whether all of you know where Tochigi prefecture is so you know this may not work so uh, it's going to be uh, it's going to be difficult but you know I think it's pretty much the same in the wine world you don't have that kind of knowledge you can acquire but then you have to put some time and energy in there drink widely find the kind of things that you like and then that can be your individual criteria. So as long as you have not reached that stage yet, please depend on people who have the knowledge. I'm not sure whether they're going to be in your Japanese restaurant, but you know I would expect that in a store where they sell sake, that distributor has taken care that the people who work in that store have sufficient knowledge and that they will be able to tell you which sake is fruity, which sake is dry, which one is light, which is medium, which is full body, which one so is very, very fresh and young, which one is is long matured. And maybe, you know, there's a few other things. Maybe if you like your sake most outspoken, you may want to check whether or so sake is unpasteurized, unfiltered, undiluted. And, you know, if you have a special preference, so maybe for very very elegant sake or you know sake with uh, with fruity aromas you may want to check polishing percentage on the other hand if you like your sake more ricey and robust yeah you may also want to check the polishing percentage and see whether you can get you know nice stuff on the less polished side
0: Okay, so there is no cheat sheet here. It's trial and error, and it's endless variety. You just need to find what works for you.
1: Yeah, yeah. Although, so, you know, endless variety is not true. I think in terms of licenses that are being used at the moment, there's probably not more than 1,200 breweries in Japan. I'm not sure how many breweries there are outside of Japan, but, you know, maybe another 200. So, you know, compared to wine, the number of producers is, uh, is limited. However, you know, a regular wine producer may make, let's say, in between six or 12 different wines. A sake brewery can easily make 30 uh, different sake. So on that side, you have a bit more variety. But, you know, when you go deep, pretty early on, you will start remembering names of certain breweries find them to your liking or not. And so it will become more easy for you to decide where you want to go. Actually, so for me, so so usually when I go to a place, I'm actually most interested in the stuff that I do not know yet. Maybe like a, a new brand from a brewery that I already know, or product from a brewery that up until now hardly was distributed outside of their own local region Usually when I go out to places, the same for the wine. Rather than drinking the wines that I already know, and this is also slightly on a professional basis, I'm actually more interested in the stuff that I haven't had yet.
0: Well, you clearly enjoy your sake, so I wanted to ask you how people can enjoy theirs. I feel like outside of Japan the image is still strong that sake is drunk hot, But at the same time, I see that many people divide Sake into two categories. Good Sake, that you drink cold, and bad Sake, that you drink hot. We know it's not true, but are there some general rules when it comes to drinking Sake?
1: Uh, So actually, this is immensely easy. And you know, it's probably also good for you to understand how this very strange situation came about. Because if you nowadays go to Japan, and you go to your regular Japanese restaurant and you order sake in most cases you'll probably get it chilled maybe you'll get it on room temperature and you will only get it warm if you specifically ask for it whereas you know here in Europe especially if you go to a Japanese chain restaurant if you order sake you know they will not even ask you they will serve it to you warm so why this huge difference it's mainly got to do with the different types of sake and different time periods in which so sake was introduced to to the west it depends a bit on where you are so but I think here in the Netherlands probably the first Japanese restaurant popped up maybe late 1960s or otherwise you know sometime in the 1970s but I guess so pretty much up until the early 1990s a Japanese restaurant was a traditional Japanese restaurant So, only so called traditional Japanese dishes, no ramen, definitely not tonkatsu, you name it. You would be probably in a 100% traditional Japanese environment tatami, wood, rather no plastic, some Japanese decorations, and the food would be served by women dressed in kimono or yukata, you name it. And then, so in order to complete the exotic. Orientalist experience you're paying for, you know, we're not in Holland now, where we're, we're in Japan for a moment. We're gonna do with the sake what you cannot do with wine. It's got to do with the assets on wine, which are different from sake. Wine doesn't like to be heated, but sake, no problem, you can heat it. So your sake in a Japanese restaurant is heated. Not because this is what they do nowadays in Japan, but so it completes non-Western exotic experience. And in the 1970s, 1980s, the variety of sake that was around was minimal and was probably relatively dry and dull sake that was coming from a sake factory, not a sake brewery. But so, nonetheless, People so who started out drinking sake in that environment, and even nowadays, if you go to a chain restaurant, they will st- still be doing this kind of stuff. You will get the notion that this is what they do in Japan. So if they see me serve sake on room temperature, you know, let alone chilled, they may criticize me for not knowing the Japanese thing, you know, because you know, this is what they do in Japan. Nowadays, more and more people have been to Japan and they know that's not true, but still. And then there's another problem, and that's got to do with the polished sake. The more polished sake, the Ginjo and daiginjo, is not traditional and was something that could not be made let's say before the wartime it it was already developed before but all sorts of economic and then wartime circumstances made that it was not a rational thing to really develop heavily polished sake so it's only i would say from maybe 1970s onwards that more breweries start making their daiginjo however they're not selling it they're only making a very very small batch of it in order to present at the annual sake competition in hiroshima and get their gold star mind you there's not one gold star hundreds of golden stars are being uh, handed out at this competition and then they can use their gold star to promote the rest of their sake not that one sake it's probably never going to be in the stores that also had to do with the the economic infrastructure that the breweries were working with and the legal framework up until the late 1980s it was very difficult to brand your sake because the whole of sake was, was categorized in three categories uh, Category 1, Category 2 and Category Special and people would think of sake rather in those categories than in terms of sake from a certain brewery so then, you know, in order to develop a more expensive sake was not a very uh, commercial, uh, what is this, well-considered well, uh, um, thing to do. However, so when the system of categories was reformed that started the 1990s, and then also the market was, was liberalized, so it became more of an option. And so more breweries started making more polished fruity ginjo for the market and that stuff was then first introduced outside japan on the american west coast where you know you have a relatively high representation of japanese americans or other asian americans at the time you know you had your fusion restaurants and your lounge places and these fruity elegant sake were introduced and some people went completely out of their minds and started screaming we never had sake uh, like this before which very well may be true but the problem is that they also started saying you know this is the best sake we ever had when you're living in california and it's summer year round i can very well understand that you like your drinks well chilled and a bit on the fruity side but that's not the whole of this uh, globe. But because this was the place where the message emanated, and then it went from California to New York and then London, Paris, you name it. So we got a completely new, a new wave of sake, different product, but then also different rules. It was no longer, it's from Japan and in Japanese restaurants, they serve it hot. So you, if you wanna be in a Japanese mood yourself, you should also enjoy your sake warm now it said, the best sake is heavily polished, and you should drink it chilled. And so along with it, then came the message that uh, if they serve you sake warm, you know, it, it cannot be of any decent quality. Now this, you know, just like the first wave of sake is complete crap. Probably the percentage of fruity sake in the whole industry is less than 10%. So it would be rather a a suicidal mission by the industry to promote a message that more than 90% of the stuff that they're making uh, is not good. So this is not true. And the rule is is very easy. It's part of the third current that we promote within then the new current of, of pure sake. We say, don't bother about the polishing rate, bother about the purity. And in terms of drinking your sake warm or cold, In essence, there's only one very clear rule. If your sake has an outspoken sweet element, don't heat it. So that's telling you that if your sake is dry, uh, you can do whatever you want. I would say in between minus 15 degrees Celsius up until 50 or 60 degrees Celsius. And the reason why you should not heat your sweet sake is not inherent to the sake itself, because the sake itself is not going to change chemically. When you heat it, it's all all about us, human beings. We experience warm things sweeter. So if you start out with a sake that is sweet, then warm it, it will probably become excessively sweet. The balance between sweetness, acidity will be off and it will no longer be nice. That's
0: it. Thank you very much. That was really insightful. But we're running out of time, so I have one last question. You've tried so many different sake. Did you come across some very unusual ones? Can you tell me about one or two?
1: Oh my god. Um, (laughs) There's quite a few really odd sake uh, out there. Uh, I'm going to name two when it's too difficult. In the 1970s, a more than 1,000-year-old recipe for sake, question mark, was reenacted. It's from the uh, Engishiki, which is a, a 10th century Japanese historical document made within the uh, Imperial Palace. And so, uh, just like we have our link between wine and Christianity, Japanese Shinto religion has this link with sake, you know, on a daily basis you offer food to the gods, but you also offer them a fresh cup of sake. So as far as we know, the first official sake brewery, not commercial, was in the compounds of the Imperial Palace and they have left behind some documents, you know, very very rough telling us about various styles of sake you know don't want to call it sake but let's let's call it so fermented rice drinks and then so one of these was given a different name in the 1970s they call it kijoshu and so it was made again and it's a very luxurious way of making sake because most of the liquid used for making the sake most of it is uh, sake itself It is not like about fortified wine or something the like, it is about using sake during the fermentation. And this will make the resulting sake a bit more sweet, a bit more sticky, and then also immensely geared towards maturation. And the number of breweries that joined in this experiment in the 1970s which you know once again was instigated by the tax office was very few because they probably thought it risky and there's one brewery in shiga prefecture that also joined in and it's a very local small family brewery which probably is due to circumstances relatively financially well off so they joined in and came up with this very very old product that hadn't been made for more than 1000 years so people didn't know it so it was a very new product and shiga prefecture now it is one of those prefectures where we do not have something that is called urban yeah it's a very rural region and this brewery is outside in in nowhere land and their local market said very interesting but we're not going to buy this and then the crazy story is that they had bottled a first small batch but most of it was still in the tank and because they couldn't sell it and because then also the sake crisis made they did not need all tanks they just left it in the tank for more than 30 years it was made in in 1978 I probably had it first in I think 2001 or 2002 And we've been introducing it to non-Japanese audiences from 2008 onwards. So when it was already 30 years matured and I think we ran out a few years ago. So uh, you could have like uh, more than 40 years of maturation on that bottle. Uh, That was crazy, Uh, crazy product. I still have a few bottles but now it's gone. Eventually it was sold probably for more than 99% to, uh, to European audiences and hardly any Japanese have, have, have actually enjoyed this. But you know, think in terms of uh, Pedro Jiménez, but then incredibly deep, incredibly wide, so many tones in there, lovely as an aperitif. It's my favorite Sunday before lunch drink. It's perfect with all desserts, and then you can also use it as a as a digestive and because the brewery was not able to sell it you get your 40 years matured product for an incredibly low price maybe i'll stop here i've been ranting on too long so let's and i haven't told you the name of this one. so the name of this product is omiji kijoshu and it was made by the uh, by ormi uh, shuzo in shiga prefecture i'm afraid that they're still selling this and they have the 1978 uh, stamped on the label but because i actually told them that i thought they were cheating their audiences they've now put on five letters and it says now 1978 blend there's a few drops of 1978 in there so most of the stuff that's in there now i think is is 2014. So it's no longer the the 100% uh, 1978 uh, experience, but still out there.
0: Wow, that was a great story and a great way to finish the episode. Thank you very much. I learned a lot today and I thought I knew about Psyche to some extent, but it's just so much deeper than I expected and now I just want to learn even more about it. Thank you again. I had a very pleasant conversation.
1: Okay, thank you much for coming all the
0: way. Thanks.